It's four o'clock on a Monday, and you know what that means, don't you? It's time for another exciting episode of Taxi TV Live. Woohoo! This week's starring mystery music supervisor. Yeah, baby. Do you believe I know two of them that are mysterious? And thank you, fake band. Thank you, fake audience. There's my iCarly audience. Let's see who's in that chat room. Hello, everybody. We've got Amanda West, Alan Hall, Edmund Red, Ron Schultz, Ron Svoboda, John McNeil, Rolf Shield, Cass McKenty, Jimmy Berland, uh, Songs from a Headband, Smith Sisters, Darren Moss, Martin Gravel, Amanda Weatherup, Greg Carosa, Daryl Berman, woo, Alex Dillon. Man, they're going by too fast for me to read. I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I can't believe it. They're flying by today. Joe Anderson, Peter Rahill, Stan M. Hello, Stan. Glenn Letts, Dean Turner, Todd B's Groove 45, Rick Cabot Podmore, JC Amity, Lamar Franklin, I Key, hello, new to taxi. Well, welcome aboard. Uh, Michelle Perone, Jay Lee, Sherry Marcus Milano, Ashley Carruthers, The Element, Giovanni Lanza, my favorite name. Uh, let's see, Jim Stamper, John Hemingway, Pierre, uh, Gloria, Jan. Um, Pete Mason, Robert Martin, wow. Anyway, uh, Stoli songs, Andy Seal, wow, a lot of new names in here. Philip Roldan, Bob Gunnerfeld, uh, Andre Stepanian. Anyway, hello everybody. Uh, hope you guys all had a good weekend. Come on, camera focus. <laughs> yeah, it is a full house. Hello, Keith Summer. Brand new member, welcome aboard. Um, <laughs> Mrs. L must be back. Yeah, she's been back for like a month or so. She actually, uh, speaking of my lovely wife, she just left the house about a eh, half hour ago and said she's been dying to paint a couple of the rooms in the office before we go back. And we're um, probably going to go back a week from today. Uh, even though the numbers of cases are going up, the number of deaths are going down, and from everything I've heard on the news, and I watch it carefully and read a lot, is they, uh, it's mostly young people now um, that are getting it. Uh, deaths are down by 39%, at least in the U.S., so that's great news. Glad to hear that. And uh, anyway, so my wife decided that we should paint a couple of the rooms uh, at the office uh, as kind of a welcome back thing to the staff. So she went out and got matching paint and she left the house a little bit ago to go over to the office and I said, you're gonna set off the alarm. And she goes, no, I won't. I can do the alarm at home. Why can't I do that one? It's the same thing. So a few minutes ago, I get a call. Wee, 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 the background, she set off the alarm. And then I get the call from the security company. Do you know that your alarm is going off at your office? Why, yes, I do. So yes, Mrs. Lasco is back. <laughs> oh, man. Hello, McCalls. How are you? Darren Fletcher, good to see you. Um, all right, well, today we've got a great show lined up. Uh, the gentleman who's gonna join me or us in a minute um, 
is a really smart guy and really knows this business inside out. And uh, he knows it both from the music supervision side of things as well as the pitching side of things. So uh, we will be able to ask him uh, all kinds of great stuff. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with the drill, the reason that we're keeping him cloaked and he is mystery music supervisor is that a lot of people see these shows that aren't taxi members and don't really maybe understand the etiquette of the industry and as soon as they latch onto somebody's name they start uh, tracking them down online get their email address or their phone number and then pummel them with a request hey will you listen to my song so i uh, give the music supervisors and other industry people the option of doing it uh, cloaked so that they don't get uh, a lot of emails and this gentleman's going to be cloaked. So there you are. Hello, John Andrews, Brad Gray. How are you? Um, did everybody have a great weekend for the 4th? Those of us in the U.S., hope you did. Uh, enjoyed some barbecue. I bought myself a bullet smoker. Uh, I've wanted a smoker for about the last year and uh, um, have been researching them. And, I just couldn't bring myself to spend like 500 to $1,500 on, on one of those. And then while researching over the weekend, I discovered the uh, Charbroil 16 and a half inch bullet smoker, which uses charcoal. It's not one of the electric ones. Um, and uh, all reviews are good. So I bought one and I seasoned it yesterday. My neighbors next door, I don't think we're all that happy because all the smoke was blowing into that, their backyard. They tend to hang out in the backyard a lot. Uh, so right after today's show, I am gonna go throw a uh, rack of beef ribs on the smoker and make them sorry they ever bought the house next door to me. <laughs> anyway, uh, very excited to have those ribs tonight. So without any further ado, Keith LeBrant is in the house. Hello. Um, <coughs> who else did I see in there? Dave Barrett, Robbie Hancock. Hello. So I'm going to call our mystery music supervisor up right now. Hello, Mystery Music Supervisor. How are you? I'm doing well, Mr. Alaska. How are you? <laughs> I'm not a mystery. I'm outed. Everybody knows who I am. <laughs> uh, your, your level is slightly lower than when I spoke to you before. Are you as close to the phone about, as you were? How about this? Uh, keep talking. Is this better? Yeah, way better. Okay. All right. Good to go. Um, everybody, uh, can you guys hear them loud and clear on your end? waiting for the chat to answer there's a little delay yep sounds great okay so uh and by way of introduction i want to let you know that uh i don't know probably four five six years ago i had this gentleman on a panel at the road rally and i believe that after the panel i walked up to him and said um you're a rock star i could do an entire panel with just you he's really smart really well informed about uh, the sync industry both from the pitching side and from the end user side and that he uh, sometimes is a music supervisor on independent films 
Uh, he also pitches music very, very regularly and gets a ton of placements on the pitching side. So I'm really excited to have him on the show to uh, just, you know, I got all kinds of questions for him and I'm sure you guys will as well. So that said, um, let's start right out with a music supervision question, which is how does music supervision differ uh, when you're working on an independent film than let's say working on a big Hollywood blockbuster? Other than obviously budget constraints are a big issue. You can certainly address that, but are, are there any other issues that are differences? Um. Yeah, I mean, you and I could talk for an hour and a half just about this. Right. <laughs> but I will say one thing that I've noticed in the last 10 years of doing this, um, there's definitely been sort of a convergence. Independent films have gotten bigger, and big-budget films have sort of gotten smaller because you can do a lot more with a dollar than you used to be able to. But coming at your question from a more general point of view, when you have a big budget studio production, you have a lot more cooks in the kitchen. You have a lot of producers. You have the director who could have final cut, who might not. You have um, actors who have their own opinions and occasionally are also musical artists who want to be involved. And a lot of people that you have to keep happy. So that's where the diplomacy comes in. So. Obviously, you do have more money to work with when you're working on a bigger film, sometimes not nearly as much as one would expect. On the independent side, and I've worked on films that were shot for literally under $100,000, Wow! I think. Um, yeah, and those are when you call on all your favors from the big movies. Um, <laughs> I think that the my, my, my sweet spot, I think, over the last kind of, couple of years of my career would probably be movies that are in the 500,000 to maybe two to three million dollar range and that would just sort of be the production budget and that would be the music source budget would be carved out of that it could range from literally zero to a healthy 10% of the budget if possible or something along those lines but with an independent film I would say that since it's a smaller crew, typically you're closer to the project from the get-go. There can be a little bit more collaboration. I have a handful of directors that I've worked with many times where sometimes they'll call me before they've started writing a script and tell me the idea for the film and ask, how would something like this theoretically work? Can you send me some songs that you know would be licensable for a film that might have a budget of 1.5 million dollars and it's fun to be involved that early now the the flip side is that when you're working on an independent film sometimes you come in and uh and you bat clean up because music licensing as as you know michael is complicated and there are a lot of small little things that can go wrong or be overlooked and I have occasionally walked into a couple projects and either a producer or a other member of the crew or a director's friend with all of the best intentions and a good head on their shoulders that they're level best to 
clear songs for the film and, you know, perhaps made some mistakes or forgot to cross a couple T's or dots and I's and then fixing those mistakes is a different type of, um, it's a different type of job altogether, but it is something that I would say happens slightly more on the independent side, I think, because then the the pipeline for an independent film is also different. You know, Batman, which I think just started filming again, we know that's a Warner Brothers movie that'll play at theaters at some point with an asterisk in the next couple of years. An independent <laughs> film is going to be made, and you don't know if it's going to be sold to a distributor. So if a film that I'm working on is sold to a distributor, they might want to put it in theaters. We might not have known that when we started. We might have to clear things differently after the film sells. I might not get hired on a movie until it's done. So independent movies are interesting, and I would also say that there there are a lot more of them than big-budget productions. So uh, there's no like clear, straight answer I can give you beyond all of that. Uh, verbiage I just threw at you, but I think it made sense. No, it did. It made great sense. Um, and I would imagine that you run into problems where, uh, you know, an executive producer or producer on a film or a director on an indie film, um, you know, people tend to love what they know, probably what they grew up with uh, in their 20s and 30s when they really, you know, started listening to music all the time. And do you run into that problem with them where they just fall in love with the song that was a hit uh, 20 years ago when, when they were in college and they so badly want that in the film and they can't really understand why their budget, let's say you're working on a film that's a million dollar budget and you've got that 10%, so you've got 100K to spend and, and they want, you know, Miss You by the Rolling Stones in there and, and they've got their head wrapped around that song you know, in kind of a make and break scenario in a scene. How do you get them off of that other than just throwing the dollar signs at them? Well, it's, it's different based on the relationships involved. Um, if it's someone that I don't know, I am happy to go out and approach. Um, that's probably Abco on the publishing side. And I would guess, uh, Sony on the master side off the top of my head I'm not sure I would be happy to go out and get quotes and and potentially even formal denials from the band on either the publishing side or the master side it's not personal it's just business um, there's a market value not all songs are created equal sometimes a director needs to see that in black and white that they cannot have the song that they want so I would never do that without having a nice, robust folder of alternate ideas. I also would, you know, I found myself in a similar situation where a director was, was just absolutely hell-bent on using a song, and it was by a very well-known band, and it was not a well-known song. And, and he was comfortable going into his personal savings to pay for the license fee and it was hefty but i said this band is willing to you know meet us sort of in the middle and and 
and license the song to your small film, but you're spending your own money for a song that you love that the audience isn't necessarily going to connect with. So maybe you spend a tiny bit more of your money and we see if we can get one of their known songs and have more of an impact and more of a hero moment. And in that instance, it wound up working. So that was a cool thing, and that's that was a win, I think, for everybody, including the band, who probably, I don't know, maybe made a few new fans out of that project. But to your point earlier, uh, a director or a producer, even a writer, when they're writing the script, can put something into a film that is just absolutely crucial and has to be there and must, no matter what, be part of the project. And you can do literally everything you can and sometimes the song just will not clear and communicating that and how to communicate that is different in every situation and requires um some delicacy do you ruin your credibility at all as a music soup when you reach out in that scenario where you're trying to license a you know whether it's a medium song or a big song from a large well-known famous act um, and you reach out to you know Abco and you reach out to Sony just to get it in writing that it's not within reach of, of the film's director or producer um, do you use up any uh, not favors but um, any credibility with them it's like why are you even reaching out to me at that kind of number you're wasting my time I'm going to broaden my answer a little bit because this is really important. And what I think is important to remember is that this is all business. This is not personal. And while I know these people personally, sometimes I'll preempt paperwork with a quick phone call. Hey, this is a little movie. Whatever you can do would be appreciated. I understand that this might not go through. I've managed expectations. Do your best. Sometimes you can get really surprised and get a reasonable fee on a big song and that's awesome that's a win but you know if you wanted to license a song from sony music entertainment they have a phone number and if you're not a music supervisor and you want to license a big song as long as you approach the proper way through the proper channel with respect then you can even go on to Warner Chapel's website and you can fill out a form and it can say the budget of the project, the type of the project. All of the information goes through. Someone reviews it. I don't know necessarily what the response percentage is. I suspect it's fairly high because all of these companies are trying to monetize their copyrights. So... I personally never have a problem going and reaching out or damaging my reputation because context is everything. I would never send a piece of paper to John Lennon's estate with a $1,000 offer on it, um, but I would send a piece of paper to John Lennon's estate without an offer and just see how much the song would cost from their point of view. And whatever the song costs is what it costs. I have, I've been involved in some nonprofit uh, online streaming things where 
you need money to change hands in order for licenses to be granted. And it's usually in those situations, maybe $100 or $150 just to process some paperwork at some of these larger companies. So I've filled out paperwork where it's been, you know, a major publisher has had 10% of a song and I literally sent a confirmation document for $15. But that's a unique situation where, uh, again, it all goes back to business. Like everyone has a job to do. And a long, long, long time ago, someone reminded me that everyone has a boss. So <laughs> if there's someone out there who is ignoring or um, passing on opportunities of any kind, their, their boss or the person they report to would probably not be thrilled to know that. At the same time, there's a level of responsibility for the person, say me, to reach out with enough uh, courtesy and professional respect that I would never want to waste anybody's time. I would never, um, I would never endeavor to, to do that because I know how busy people get and I get busy myself. So occasionally it's a bit of a horse and pony show, but that's just how the game is played. And, and I, I will draw a line in the sand at certain points where I will not go back and ask for favors or lower fees in certain situations where either I know there's no point or it just becomes diminishing returns being the, the squeaky wheel and the annoying guy. Right. So I avoid that. Well, you're certainly not annoying. That much I can vouch for. Uh, that was all great information. Uh, let's talk about the lack of education um, in indie film producers uh, that I speak to, many of them that I've spoken to, last couple of years I've been on a personal mission to get more indie films to run requests through Taxi. Uh, the, the times that we do work with indie film producers, uh, we get really big numbers of, of, of songs or instrumentals placed in indie films, usually films that are in that kind of quarter of a million to a million dollar range. And oftentimes they don't actually have a music supervisor. And oftentimes it's the producer, him or herself, that is acting in that capacity. And somebody tells them about Taxi, they send us an email, or give us a phone call. Um, it's not unusual for us to get anywhere between maybe five and eight different pieces of music in an indie film, which to my knowledge is a pretty large chunk. Um, I think that they're shocked at the quality of the music they can get um, from Taxi's members. That said, so many of the people that I've reached out to, uh, I, you know, I'll look online and find out who's in post-production on films. I'll look at the log line. Uh, reach out to them and say something like, uh, I see that, uh, you know, you just shot a film and you're in post on something that took place uh, in Paris in the early 70s. Um, would you like us to run a listing for you? And they go, well, is it royalty free? And that's my, my point and my question is so many of the indie film producers that I've spoken to are just really hung up on working with royalty free music. And that comes from a misconception on their part, which is 
if by some act of God the film gets picked up, you know, uh, is distributed, uh, they don't understand that in, in the U.S. that there are no theatrical royalties. And the biggest misconception is that royalties will be coming out of their personal pocket every quarter. Uh, I'm just astonished that they will settle, and I don't want to diss all royalty-free libraries, but many of them that I've personally checked out, the music sounds like you know needle drop music. It's just not that strong. Um, why is it that indie film people treat music as a bastard stepchild and haven't really educated themselves uh, so they could get better music at, at reasonable prices? Um, that's a great question. I think that the tides could be turning a bit with the growth of... Uh, I think the Guild of Music Supervisors has actually done a decent job in terms of educating people outside of the sync licensing community that we exist. Because if you say, when I go home or when I'm in different parts of the country and I say I do music supervision, people, and I think I've made this joke or comment to you before, people think I'm printing out sheet music and handing it to the cellist. Right. They don't necessarily have context for what music supervision is. When I am approached by directors or filmmakers or producers who have never licensed music before, it's all education. That's what the first conversation is. And I'm happy to have that conversation before I've read a script or agree to work on anything. Because at the end of the day, my responsibility as a music supervisor and also working for a label publisher, my responsibility is always to the musicians. And, and it puts me in a weird bind at times, but I always want to make sure the musicians are getting compensated fairly and properly and correctly. So I'd actually like to avoid the topic of royalty-free music because I actually don't really know about it at all. Um, and I, I personally haven't really ever been asked to pursue anything with it. Um, so I don't want to say anything inaccurate or, or offensive or anything like that. I'm going to stick to things that I know. But uh, in terms of an independent producer or an independent film producer who's trying to find music for their movie, sending them to somewhere like a taxi is a good idea because you guys serve as a, effectively a third-party rep for your members. Right. And you streamline the process and create a pipeline whereby they can get good music for their film and theoretically the hardest part there is finding someone to just do the license and to paper it up so most films I would say if they're in that budget range would have a production attorney there are some pretty boilerplate master publishing agreements that the writers and the artists would sign and it would be relatively straightforward. Obviously, it's a specialized skill set. Not just any attorney can look over a music-related contract and understand all the implications. I think that there's a responsibility on the part of ASCAP and BMI and CSEC and um, GMR and all the collection agencies to maybe explain how everything works a little bit better so music 
so so the people that work on independent films know where to send a cue sheet when the project is over and a cue sheet is the document that lists every piece of music in the film the way it's used the amount of time it's used and the royalties are calculated based off of that document i have finished films and submitted all of my delivery which is licenses and audio and a cue sheet and all of the paperwork and then a couple of weeks later a producer will call me and say hey where do i send this cue sheet and that's a great question i'm i'm happy to answer it you send it right to ASCAP. you send it right to bmi there are there are emails on all of those sites where you do that but you have to know to do that that kind of goes back also to your question earlier what's the difference between working on a major film and an independent film well major films have business affairs departments behind them so those things get ironed out and taken care of in that way a lot of these independent films are diy and people just bootstrapping it and getting these things made and figuring the stuff out on the fly so i would hope that other people in my position also view our job as an educational position just as much as a administrative creative music movie-ish type job i think a lot of uh independent musicians are somewhat enamored with the idea of getting their music in independent films and they do understand that the sync fees will be considerably lower uh you know what uh, let's talk about a range before i get into that question um kind of typical ranges for sync fees for an indie film let's say something in that half million and you know to a few million dollar range uh for the total production budget uh and compare that to what a sync fee might be for a fairly well-known band, maybe not a super group, but you know, what if there is such a thing as an average range in a feature, bigger feature. So can you give us some scope as to the ranges? Absolutely. Um, if it's a project that's important to you, that matters to you, made by a friend of yours that you care about, that you believe in, uh, I would say that, you know, I've, I've, done paperwork and licensed songs for 50 or $100 on independent films where there's a personal relationship in play and that is the amount of money that the song is licensed for. Standard, I would say things in the, the size of film we're talking about, a, a $1 to $3 million film, um, maybe one to 3000 all in for a vocal song that has a somewhat featured use if it's an instrumental song that's kind of playing in the background at a restaurant 500 to to a thousand would be sort of in the pocket it would it would depend on a lot of factors my friends love to play the game how much did this song cost when we're <laughs> watching anything and the answer is i'm not gonna swear the answer is always i don't have any freaking idea but <laughs> I can venture uh, I can venture a guess. So on a big film, I mean, they use... I've been watching a lot of Marvel movies lately, and they use Black Sabbath and all of the big songs, and those movies have insane budgets. I mean, those are songs that are probably in the seven-figure range. I've, I've only seen that... 
I've never personally licensed or cleared a song for seven figures, but I've seen that paperwork come across my desk for advertisements, never for a film. Right. On a film, all bets are off. I would say that if you're an indie band and you're 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 touring and you're, uh, you know, maybe playing venues and selling out venues that are thousand thousand type clubs. I don't know, like. Uh, not quite the Wiltern, but around there for an LA reference. Um, right. The Troubadour. If you're one of a band at around that level, and you're someone from Warner Brothers comes calling, then seventy five hundred to fifteen thousand dollars to however much you can get out of them if you have a good sync agent to represent your band, and that would be a negotiation and a back and forth. If you're a legacy artist, if it's a Bob Dylan song that we all know, um, it's really tricky to, to forecast that. Uh, but I, I don't think that there's a scenario for a major film with a big actor, like, I don't know, Tom Cruise is in it, Will Smith is in it, someone like that's in it, then uh, those, those songs are are probably in the forty to a hundred and fifty thousand dollar range ish. There are a lot of asterisks around everything I'm saying here, right? Because <laughs> there are a lot of factors that go into these things. I mean, I was watching something recently that had a lot of it was a, it was a television show, and and you know some of the characters make a lot of jokes that involve quoting songs and those are spoken word visual vocal uses so every time a writer gets cute and writes in a lyric as a joke which sometimes they're hilarious you have to pay for that those uh, could be 2500 or 5000 dollar lines of dialogue that come out of a music budget so that would be another thing to consider where if you're telling a joke or if you're quoting a song in a major film, it could be an actor speaking two verses or two lines from a song and that could cost $10,000. Could it be something as simple uh, as a guy and a girl in a romantic scenario uh, and he jokingly says, baby, I'm a want you. David Gates gets a check for 5k for that. I don't know. Is that the title of the song? Uh, I don't know. It's close. <laughs> if it's the title of the song, you can say it without cadence. Really? So, usually. That's the kind of thing that you can call a lawyer about. Okay, and so I'm not e a lawyer. even if the... Oh, am I supposed to say that at some point? Nah, uh, yeah, he's not a lawyer, just, just to cover your butt. But uh, So, even if the title is the hook, that's why you need the lawyer, to determine... <laughs> Yeah, and that can include, like, actually sending the scene to the lawyer, um, sending the script pages, how the, the, if it's used, if it's accredited, if it's snuck in as part of a joke and they don't say, you know, as Bob Dylan says, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes the accreditation makes it that you don't have to pay. It's a weird, that's a gray area in terms of spoken word references. That would be more something that if I was talking to 170 screenwriters, I would be sure to mention that because anytime I talk to a writer, 
I say, please don't write any songs into your script. That's always something I put out there because none of us like seeing that. Yeah, they don't like having their budget eaten up on a, you know, the spoken word version of a lyric. Well, and they're easy to miss. That was a problem I actually had because uh, I, I don't have a great knowledge of uh, certain genres of music, and there was a project that I worked on that I didn't know was full of uh, of, of notorious B.I.G. lyrics, actually. And, and it was actors that had ad-libbed, and that was a very tricky thing to reverse engineer. And... Um, I, that was me. I had to take responsibility for that because I was supposed to know that, and uh, that was that was super fun. That was a great week. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, like you mentioned, when you go home and people say, you know, what do you do? I'm a music supervisor, and they think you're handing sheet music to the cellos, uh, the cellists. Um, I think that people, when they hear that I'm in the music industry, they start singing songs that they think are obscure and say, do you know who did that? It's like they think that everybody in the music business knows every song. And I don't know about you, but I don't. <laughs> I don't. I, I'm, what I find in my personal life is that the music I gravitate towards is stuff that I was really listening to uh, probably ages... 16 to 22 23 24 yep um that's kind of my my go-to when i'm looking for things to have on in the background and i do listen to new artists and emerging artists and i stay current and every once in a while a record will come out that'll just totally blow my hair back but um i i do sort of stick with the things that i like and then i i'm, I'm always back to uh listening to what's relevant to whatever projects I'm working on. And, and I do work in the vintage music space. So I'm listening to a lot of music that um, people haven't heard in a long time or have never heard ever. Um, yeah. And I definitely want to get into the vintage music thing in a minute. Um, are there any, what are the various revenue streams for indie films in that uh, they may know, I should clarify this question. Music that goes into a film does earn you money performance royalties outside of the U.S. I believe the United States is the only country that doesn't pay for theatrical performances. Um, but indie films are probably, maybe I'm wrong about this, but I think they're less likely to go international. So are there any other revenue streams for an indie film? Let's say uh, there's an indie film, it's a million dollar film and it's got a hundred thousand dollar music budget. Um, somebody gets a couple thousand bucks to license their song. Uh, so what did they have other than Netflix where they could make money with that? Well, I think that there's the, an old adage that you've certainly heard and have definitely said, which is that publishing is a game of pennies. So the, the life cycle of an independent film is really different and um, they're all different. There are some independent films that are made and will play in 14 or 15 theaters in the United States and then wind up on demand on cable and, Voodoo and uh, 
I'm trying to think of some of the other platforms. There's so many right now. It's ridiculous. So they go into this pool of, of video on demand where you're paying six ninety nine to watch it, and they live in that world for a few months. And then they drop down and maybe they're two ninety nine. And then eventually they wind up on a subscription service or they wind up on a free streaming service like Epix or Crackle. And or in a good you know, a good result would be a Netflix where there's more visibility or a Hulu. I personally am not sure what those royalty rates look like with Netflix, Hulu, etc., the digital services. Mm-hmm. So the main the the money really comes in on the sync fee for an independent artist in the situation you're describing and over time eventually there will be some back end generated as the film is viewed and streamed and watched. A lot of films, and there are a ton of movies, a lot of movies don't get watched. So if, if no one's watching something, and, and I guess you could use this, we can kind of talk about the old days where if there's a show on network television that totally tanked and nobody watched it and there was a song in there on a BMI statement, those numbers would be significantly lower than if that exact same placement had occurred on a hit show. And it's because of the number of people watching it. So with an independent film, I think we're still sort of in the wild, wild west in terms of where these things can go. Uh, It gets a little more nuanced when we talk about the direct license where you waive your performance royalties I don't ever advise anyone to do that. Uh, and waiving performance royalties, um, Michael, I think that uh, you might be better suited to kind of sum up what that would mean for your members than I would. But basically that's saying I'll take your sync fee, I'll take your $3,000 for you to use my song, and then I acknowledge that I will never see another penny from my performing rights organization, be it BMI or ASCAP. I think that's effectively how it would work. Correct? Yeah, absolutely. That's how it would work. And some musicians are, you know, enthralled with that concept because they get more cash in hand up front and they really don't know what the performance royalties would be in the future. So they're willing to take that deal. The, the sad part about that is it creates a slippery slope. Um, if the entire industry or the majority of the industry were to go that way with direct licensing where people just got paid a little bigger sync fee up front but had no chance of making anything in the back end, um, eventually, once the majority of, let's say, TV networks, films, whatever, are doing that, then they've got you in position uh, where they can say, you know, uh, those bigger sync fees, we're not paying them anymore. Um, so, so earlier, you know, I, I mentioned that I wasn't going to say anything about royalty-free music because I don't know much about it. don't yeah. want to say anything out of turn. In terms of direct licenses, I, I, I don't really know too much about the behind-the-scenes machinations of what those conversations are at the Netflixes and the Hulus and the other streaming services. But philosophically, I am very much opposed to the concept of giving up your performance royalties, either as a musician or as a publisher, that is something that I believe should be declined. 
that's my take on it. That's right. just me as, as an individual. And I'm not going to draw a hard line in the sand about that for a musician who wants to make their own determination for their own music. That's just kind of the philosophy I ascribe to. Yeah, remember uh, it was six months ago or so, uh, I believe it was Discovery was talking about doing that deal across all their networks where everything would be direct license. And uh, ASCAP and BMI obviously were in an uproar over it, as was the music community, you know, as a whole. And I was really glad to see that they backed off of that because it's a slippery slope. Um, many years ago, at least 10 years ago, one of the major networks called me personally and said, uh, we've been watching your company. We really like what you guys do. Uh, we recently heard a bunch of music. Uh, I don't know where they heard it. Could have been somebody was using it for a show or a promo at the network. They called and said to me, we will use your company nearly exclusively to source all of our music if you can guarantee us that all the music will be done direct license. And... I remember saying, wow, I'm really flattered, but no thank you, because uh, I, I could just imagine musicians like, wow, I'm getting a ton of stuff on this big you know, broadcast network, but that would have been the shot heard around the world. That would have literally been the grease at the top of the slippery slope, so I couldn't even think about throwing our members under the bus to do that. Well, thank you for taking that stand, and a lot of people have in yeah. the last few years. I mean, it's... This is a battle that's being fought more and more. The, I'm sure you've had people on who've talked about the Music Modernization Act and some of the legislation that's gone through Congress finally after years. Um, but these are a lot of rules that need to be modernized that go back to a time when Netflix and Hulu and these opportunities were so far from even remotely being an idea that we need to make some updates to the way we approach how we compensate our creative individuals. And this played out 30 or 40 years ago with stock photography, where to run a photo in a major publication, that photo, that photographer would receive a tremendous amount of money. And now there are royalty-free websites where you can go and grab a stock photo of anything that you want. So photographers, and I will swear here, photographers are up Shit's Creek. Yep. And that's not cool. So from a overall general copyright point of view there are kinks that are being worked out and that will continue to need to be worked out and musicians in particular need advocates like you like publishers like performing rights organizations to take stand and, and to say that that's not acceptable and we do need to be fairly compensated for our work and I think that that seems to be happening more and more consistently, I hope. And it seems like it. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, unfortunately, technology moves at a much faster speed than legislation or, or legal issues in general. But yeah, uh, you know, it's definitely talked about a lot more and things do happen. It's like by the time they happen, some new technology comes out. I don't know about you, but I, you know, I'm a reasonably, at least I think I'm a reasonably intelligent person. Some might beg to differ. Uh, and I read a lot about all the different ways that music can be monetized. You know, if it's on a streaming service or 
if it's randomly part of a playlist versus you've requested it to be played or if it's on uh, you know you're listening in your car during rush hour and it's raining outside there are all these different caveats that create different payment scenarios I don't understand them frankly as much as I've tried to wrap my head around them I've got dozens of very in-depth articles I've had friends of mine that, that are music attorneys explain it to me publishers I don't know how anybody can keep track of all this stuff anymore I would say that you and I have probably read a lot of the same articles and drawn a lot of the same conclusions I used the phrase wild wild west earlier and I've heard that since I started doing this, and yeah. I don't think that's going to change in certain regards. People are making things up on the fly. I'm I'm confused right now because my sister texted me last night to find out if HBO Max is going to work on her Amazon Fire Stick in her Roku TV. Wow. And I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's going to be on HBO Max versus Peacock versus CBS All Access, versus these services that are launching. And I'm just as confused as the average consumer, and, and it's my job to stay on top of these things. So I would like to think that ASCAP and BMI and the Mechanical Licensing Committee and all of the people in Washington whose job it is to mind the shop are minding the shop because a lot of things are changing in terms of how we consume content and the platform's where we're able to do so. So things are certainly very interesting in 2020 for a lot of reasons. We can add this to the pile of interesting things. Yes, we can. Uh, also, imagine the scenario that we've got right now with video content. I remember when people started rolling out, uh, you know, when Spotify in uh, Pandora rolled out, that all of a sudden different labels or different uh, label groups or publishing entities we're rolling out you know warner streaming streaming service and the sony music streaming service and, and i remember saying to somebody nobody knows which label or which publisher owns this music so what are you going to do i want to hear the rolling stones therefore i've got to go here and get it i want to listen to the beatles i got to go there and get it it's got to be all things available under one roof just for the sake of consumers being able to use it. I think in my advanced placement history class in high school, we talked about like baby bell and people getting broken up and things like that. Right. And media conglomerates are seem to be sort of conglomerating in a way that we're all going to have to figure these things out in a whole new way again. And I don't know that history so well, but I just want to be able to watch my shows in a relatively straightforward way. And it's getting it's getting more convoluted, which like you said, it's there are a lot of revenue streams for music, but they're not they're not straight lines. They're they're tricky right now. One of my daughters kept recommending that my wife and I should watch uh, the series Outlander, which has been around for years. I think it just wrapped Outlander's up. Outlander's on Showtime, right? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I know that I've scooted past it while flicking channels late at night and gone, oh, that's beautiful cinematography, but it's, you know, season three. I'll never be able to jump in now and get it, so I skipped it. So my daughter said, well, Dad, you can stream all seven seasons. 
And I felt like such an idiot going on uh, Amazon Prime and searching, oh, no, it's not there. Okay, it's got to be on Netflix. We did find it on Netflix, and, and we uh, actually watched seven episodes yesterday. <laughs> um, yeah, I, that's, the con- that's the second half of the conversation with the, what are you watching? Right. Oh, where are you watching it? Yeah. Because otherwise you're going to have to go track it down. Although you just said Outlander, which reminds me of a very fun, like, B movie from probably 2005 with uh, Jim Cavazil called Outlander that everyone should watch. It's a lot of fun. It's Vikings and Aliens. I'm going to probably watch it tonight. I forgot about it. Thank you, Michael. You're welcome. Uh, One last question on the indie film thing, which is, are there any, and I know that this is a nearly impossible question to answer. Sure. are there any genres that you've noticed that get used more frequently than other genres? Yeah, I'm going to say, I'm going to say rock music in a broad sense and under that umbrella, because it's pretty big tent. I'm going to say that if you look at, and this is basically the, the 10 year anniversary of me being involved in sync licensing this, this summer, uh, early on, it was a lot of things like the Black Keys, so that would have been blues rock. Um, Broken Bells, that would have been more of the electro rock. Penguin Prison comes to mind for some reason, also electro pop rock. Uh, White Stripes, Jack White has always been kind of a constant. And I'm trying to think of other band of horses uh wilco bands that are writing rock music you talk a lot in taxi related materials and at the road rally and things like that about universal themes right there, there's something that i also like to say to people too because i don't know if you're at my house and you put on records you might be surprised at some of the things on my shelf i have a lot of sunny and share records and that's pop music and and pop music is popular that's that's where it comes from that means a lot of people like it so pop rock is is the the way to go for most movies in general across the board um it works in scenes in restaurants it works in scenes in cars it works in scenes emotional montages kids in their bedrooms that are fighting with their parents and they slam the door, what are they going to put on? They're going to put on indie rock because that's usually what kids are listening to. Um, you know, if it's a movie where it has a, uh, a different setting or if it's a movie about different type of community, then the music would certainly be different. But in a general sense, we're talking about power chords we're talking about uh you know like fun big choruses major key and and universal themes with the lyrics that's a great answer um let's move on to talking about vintage music um little setup on that uh our mystery uh person our mystery guest today uh in the company he works with uh, we've had probably close to a 20-year relationship with them. Um, probably one of our very best relationships with any entity in the industry. Um, 
they have found a tremendous amount of music through Taxi and have licensed a ton of that stuff over the years. And there's just a lot of mutual respect and a lot of affection, corporate affection, if you will, back and forth between us. Uh, we've always appreciated that a great deal. And nothing puts a bigger smile on my face every week than getting emails from you where you say, oh, we got so-and-so, you know, when it's a TV show that I know and I watch or a really big film or something, it's exciting for me knowing that this vintage music that was made sometimes, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago and has been sitting on a shelf, has it, it scores points on two levels for the creators of the music. Number one, maybe even more importantly than the money is the emotional satisfaction and the thrill they get out of having something that they created with all that love in their heart 50 years ago. And here it is in a big TV show where millions of people are gonna see it. Uh, and the other thing is if you own vintage music, although what defines vintage is getting more and more uh, contemporary these days, just because we're getting older, um, it's really awesome when we see people that are in their 60s, 70s, sometimes 80s or 90s, that are able to have an income stream from music that they created decades ago. So I, I just want to publicly thank you and the entire team over there for uh, just enriching lives, you know. Uh, well, this is where I can get a little Pollyanna. Okay. Um, <laughs> Go for because, it. Because I professionally have really only worked in the creative sector. I've only really done... Um, this or things like this so I can't speak to working in real estate or construction or other fields but in music and in licensing in particular there's this weird thing that happens where everybody can get a win where a deal can be negotiated in which everyone can walk away happy and the way that that happens is say we come in this is uh, I can give you a very personal uh, very personal story here where we were approached through, this was years ago, through Taxi. An artist had a song from 1964, 65, and it also ties into a show. I know you like, Michael. Okay. I also have my computer screen up and just pointed at you like you could see me. Uh, <laughs> so that artist brought us the song. We wound up uh, working out an, a, a deal where we signed it, and then released it, pitched it, and the truth is, when we sign songs, we never know when they're going to get placed. We only sign songs that we are confident can get placed, because otherwise, why would we encumber something that wouldn't fit with our model or that we don't believe we could help? So we hear a song that we think we could help along, then we can help it along. So we're in this scenario where you introduce us to this artist this artist gets a couple bucks in his pocket and he also gets validation on work that he did 50 years ago mm -hmm. this artist has moved on i don't know what he does say he's a lawyer or a teacher or a doctor and we have all of them so he's getting a couple bucks he's getting some validation that the work that he did while not recognized in the 60s in 2017 is a really good piece of work that for whatever reason just didn't pop when it could have popped 
and as a company we're getting we're enriching our catalog and making our catalog cooler and bringing in high quality material with real people playing real instruments and then our client the music supervisor for the TV show is getting really cool really high quality music from a company where they can be confident all of our X's and O's are in the right place and our T's are crossed and I's are dotted so they win and then the TV show gets a really cool song and they win and then all the millions of people watching it including you Mr. Laska because I believe you like the show This Is Us right the audience is enriched by hearing the song so fast forward 6, 8, 12 months however long it takes for a placement like that to show up on a BMI statement even if it's a small show that 6 people in 4 states watch and it's a $7 <laughs> line item on a BMI statement well that's doing two things that's putting a couple bucks in the artist's pocket literally in that case but it's also saying hey some people heard your music some people heard your music that's been sitting on a shelf for 50 years so it's like a double win there. So in the scenario I just laid out, which is transactional, every single person walks away feeling good about every transaction. And I don't know where else that can happen. I suspect it's possible in other fields, but I personally don't know. Now, the, the very like personal connection to this is the very instance that I am describing, the song, the show, the story, all of it. I was sitting with my grandfather, one of the last times I saw him, and we were just talking, and TV was on in the background, and I wasn't paying attention to it, and I heard a song on the TV show, and I said, what the hell is that song? It sounds familiar. And it was this song. And I said, Grandpa, funny story. And I told him the whole thing about that song. And he looked at me and said, oh, huh, weird. And then the next day I got the email from the artist that he saw it and how excited he was. And I talked to my boss and he was all excited because it's a big show and it was a cool placement. It was very cool use. It was actually uh, it was a song from the 60s. So they were able to use it in one of their Vietnam scenes. And like, so me, removed, I'm not a viewer. I don't watch that show. But my life is enriched as some some dude in a room with a TV on, you know? So yeah. a lot of stars aligned to put that song in that show and to put that song into however many millions of people who are watching that show to put it into their lives. So you tell me who doesn't win in the scenario I just laid out. Even the relatives win because you and I both, I'm sure have wiped a tear from our eyes uh, when we get those emails from people that say, you know, I can't tell you how incredibly good it felt to have my family sitting on the couch with me to hear my song from 40 or 50 years ago playing that TV show last night. Uh, it's even the extended family has a win because grandpa or uncle Bob's stock just goes up and it validates them in front of the people that are the, the ones that are most important that they get validated in front of, you know, it's just awesome. You're right. And with, with vintage music, it's generational. You know, yeah. it's grandkids. But with it's the same idea with with contemporary music. I don't want that to be lost in the conversation as well. Because some kid in a basement 
this happened on another project I worked on. Some kid in the basement, 16-year-old kid, Minnesota, in his mom's basement. I don't remember how the song wound up on my desk, but his mom had to fill out the paperwork because he was he was a minor. And so that kid, I think he's still out there making music. I've lost touch with him, but he had that validation at the very, very beginning of his career. He is his mom and his dad who have to put up with all the banging on the drums in the basement that they're so sick of get to see that this is a viable path for this kid. And so it works there too. And it's just like a wonderful thing. I used the word Pollyanna when I set all of this up. I think we could all use some of that right now. Absolutely. Uh, you know, these are the behind the scenes moments that you and I experience pretty much on a daily basis. Certainly, uh, I, I don't think a week goes by where, you know, we don't get these emails from people. And it's heartwarming. It, it reminds me uh, of why we get out of bed at taxi every day and do what we do. Of course, that applies, you know, for contemporary stuff, not just vintage stuff. But there is something a little sweeter about the vintage stuff because of the generational thing and the extended family, all that stuff. It's just great. Um, let's talk about recording quality. Uh, people are often confused when we run listings looking for vintage music. We'll say even a good quality demo can work. Um, it's hard to explain the difference. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this. I don't know if I've ever told you, but the term broadcast quality didn't really get used in the music industry until I was having a hard time explaining to taxi members back in the early 90s what the difference was between something that might be in a music library versus something that a big artist like Michael Jackson might have done in a 48-track digital studio with a 96-input SSL console in front of him. Um, and I was looking at, at a like videography magazine one day, and there was a picture of a new Sony, you know, like one of those shoulder mount cameras, and it said broadcast quality. And so I started using that in our listings, and it really did take off in the industry. It's a great way to describe something. And people say to me, well, what does broadcast quality mean? They can't separate the audio quality, audio engineering, and the mix quality. Um, from other factors that go into the stew of what determines if something is broadcast quality. Um, so how would you describe broadcast quality in, from the vintage music perspective? So just like I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an audio engineer, but um, <laughs> that's actually, I think, something that has, has served me sort of well in this endeavor because... Things don't need to be perfect. That is that is one thing to keep in mind. The scratches and pops of you know transferred material add character to vintage recordings and tell us that they're vintage. And that stuff that you know those little those little artifacts are not necessarily things that subtract from the recording. Sometimes those are things that add to the recordings. But specifically to your point, broadcast quality. Let's think about what that could mean. If I'm going to sit here and I'm going to record a demo on, if I'm going to get on my guitar and I'm going to write a song and I'm going to record a demo onto the Notes app on my phone, that's not broadcast quality. But if I have a decent microphone and I run it through a decent program on my laptop, I could make something theoretically that would be able to go into a film or onto a television show by taking a little extra care and going through a few extra steps. And Taxi has a lot of resources 
and I've seen that at the road rally, and I'm sure you have those online about, you know, digital workstations and things along those lines. Right. So if you take that mentality and you go back in time, if you were recording stuff onto dinky little cassette tapes on a Sony Walkman in the mid-early 80s, and you have a recording that is mostly tape hiss with a song buried underneath, there's only so much that can be done to clean it up. That being said, if it's a good song and you can hear it and it's evocative of the era, that would be something that we would certainly consider because there is character to that. That's also sort of what would be a differentiator between, um, I don't want to, I never want to disparage any kind of music, but I would just say like cubicle rock where it could be made to sound old. And, um, so that would be one, one thing is going backwards. If you were using like a, a nicer four track Tascam four, two, four, whatever in the nineties and recording that way, and you still have those cassette tapes and you have four tracks on those, those are probably at a point where they could be cleaned up and they could be made to sound um, exactly how they should. And that would be the kind of thing that even though in the 90s you thought of that as a demo and you were doing it on the cheap onto a cassette tape you bought you know, at the drugstore, it could be worth revisiting those cassettes. Um, going even further back if you because recording you know the further back in time you go the more expensive and arduous and difficult recordings were to make so in the 60s there's this thing called the nashville demo (laughs) and that's vocal and guitar and that is so you could hear the song kind of bare bones and then the songwriters who had contracts with publishers they would record their nashville demos on decent microphones in actual studios the only place you could do the recordings and vocal guitar simple and then if a publisher liked it they would take it and they would you know give it to a known artist to record with a full band and and really produce it 16 tracks 24 tracks etc those nashville demos to me personally as a music fan are like gold as a someone who works in vintage music archival publishing etc those songs are broadcast quality because those capture a very special moment in time where the type of song that was written was not usually recorded that way so if you can find something like that where you know we were talking about demos, so that's kind of where we are now. If you if you have access to songs like that that were recorded in that way, those have a whole new lifespan. Those have a whole new outlet because hearing that stuff is like a trip to a museum, and it can be it can be a very rewarding experience to listen to it. But additionally, that can add a lot of flavor and a lot of texture to a project in in terms of a visual sense where it can transport you back to the 60s it can transport you back to the 70s or 80s um so having some of those artifacts and some of those 
imperfections do not preclude something from being broadcast quality. All that being said, we do need the songs to be professional. You know, uh, vocalists always need to be on key, and the chord changes need to be well done, and all of the things that go into like a good song need to be there. But getting super hung up on little details can be—it's a forest from the trees situation. There, there are—it's not one size fits all. I mean. There's a song from a taxi writer that we signed that I think actually was recorded on Sony Walkman in the early 90s. There are songs that we've signed from taxi writers that are actually authentic Nashville demos. Um, and we run the gamut and, and we make them sound how they are supposed to sound. So. I hope that answers your question. I think yeah, you got a little convoluted there. No, it does. You covered a lot of ground and it was good. Um, it's important to note that when you guys you know, breathe life back into an old recording, you're not trying to make it sound like today's recordings. You're probably not running it through mastering software, trying to get it to sound like something that was recorded today. You're trying to make it sound the best it, that it can. You want to maintain the authenticity of the old recording. And, and my take on it from working with you guys for so many years and being well-educated by one of your co-founders over and over again, which is, it's visceral. Um, he and I sat on stage years ago and did a thing where we played what was probably the best example of a modern, you know, current recording that was made to sound old. And I played a little game with him, like, you know, is it old or is it uh, made to sound old? And he nailed every one of them so quickly. It was mind blowing to me. I, I honestly, personally couldn't screen music for you guys because I'm fooled too often and I'm an engineer by trade. So it's important to note the visceral quality that when you hear something um, in a scene that it doesn't have to be a hit record. It would be kind of cool if it sounds like maybe it could have been a hit. I think we've all had the experience where we're watching a film or a TV show and we hear a piece of music and go, wow, it's not really familiar, but it sounds like it should be. Was it a hit that I missed back in the day? No, it's probably something that was found by taxi, handed off to you guys, got into a film, and it sounds like it should have been a hit, which probably means that a band with a decent manager got a, an advance from the label to go make some decent 16 or 24 track recordings in the 70s, and then they ended up not getting signed in the demos uh, were almost record quality, landed back in their hands, and that's gold for you guys, right? Yeah, and we have people that work on those who were working on those types of recordings at the time, on um, that authentic equipment. So it really does, we don't try to make things sound like it's 2020. We try to make things sound like it's 1973 or 1984 or whenever the recordings are actually from Michael. This is where we have to do our disclaimer, where if anybody is out there with a tape, with a cassette, with anything, and you have any doubts whatsoever about playing it, do not play it, do not touch it, do not collect go, do not try to transfer that thing anywhere. 
because it could just disintegrate. And I've heard too many horror stories about that happening. Keep it in a cool place. Bring it into your house if it's in the garage. Bring it up from the basement if it's in the basement. Keep it safe. Think about what could be on there. But whatever you do, don't hook up some old reel-to-reel thinking that it's going to be totally calibrated and totally fine and ready to play a tape that hasn't been moved since Nixon was president. We don't want that to happen. So I know that you have told this to many people, Michael. I think that this is a good opportunity to pump the brakes a bit and remind everybody that if those things are out there, we need them to stay in the condition that they are in because you have to take a tape and you have to put it in an oven for 24 hours. You have to put it through machine very carefully. You have to have everything calibrated meticulously by engineers who work with their hands and do this and only this for a living. And it is just such a process. I mean, it's like when someone goes in to restore a painting, you see the results when a painting gets ruined because it gets on the news and everyone makes fun of it. And it's this goofy painting that someone tried to restore. and It's terrible. We don't want that to happen to any great old songs that no one's ever heard. And that could even be the case with a 45. If you have a scratched up 45, don't go and put it on your $45 Crosley turntable from Urban Outfitters that you got your niece. Because <laughs> we don't know what the cartridge is like on the, on the turntable. It could make the 45 worse. Whereas if it were to be professionally transferred on the right kind of turntable, then maybe there are some tricks that could be applied by an engineer who knows what they're doing, some audiographs, some crossfades, some other words that I don't know exactly what they mean, but can use in a sentence, and <laughs> fixed up enough to be your broadcast quality magic phrase. So I take that stuff super seriously, because I've heard so many stories about people just throwing stuff out, and that's that's bad. Don't do that. Um, let's go back to the visceral aspect of vintage music again. Um, Let's come up with a a scene. It's uh, nineteen. Let's say it's nineteen seventy one. The Vietnam War is still a thing. Um, classic rock is still a thing, and you've got a scene where some soldiers are at some sort of graduation banquet dinner thing, and music is playing in that scene. I'm absolutely convinced that I would rather, and I've learned this from you guys, much rather have a B plus or A minus song that was a pretty decent demo from back then playing in that scene than taking something that was recorded a month ago and trying to make it sound like it was recorded back then. It's indescribable. It literally is something that you feel more than you hear, even if you're not paying attention to the song, which you probably shouldn't be. You should be paying attention to the dialogue if the film is any good. Um, I, I, I'm so grateful to you guys for teaching me that stuff because most viewers don't know it, but they feel it. They may not even be aware that they feel it, but it adds to the authenticity and credibility of the scene. It's, it's magic. Well, I've been very lucky to work for uh, a lot of very talented people on the publishing side and on the supervision side. So uh, if you haven't noticed, I have a lot of little sayings. And one of them is that as a supervisor, kind of the best thing you can hope for is anonymity. Anonymity to maybe someone walks out of the movie theater and says, oh, the music was pretty good there. 
because like you said, you don't want to distract. You don't want to take away. But the subtlety is really where the artistry comes out. So in terms of the visceral experience, one way that I sum it up, and I don't want to go rummaging through my unalphabetized stack of records. So Michael, this might be an opportunity for you to bring out your encyclopedic knowledge of vintage music. But there's that Diana Ross record from I think the late 70s, early 80s. It's black and it's black and red on the cover. I can never remember what it's called. But it's just a pretty straightforward um, vocal soul record. Not super dancey, just vocal Diana Ross. This is it. And you listen to it, and it's absolutely amazing. And then if you listen to a contemporary artist doing similar things, perhaps even covering one of those songs today, people just sound different in 2020 than they did in 1980. And, yeah, it's recording quality and recording techniques and and things like that, but it's also the way that we're trained and the way that we have the media that we have consumed and the environment that we're brought up in. So... Diana Ross, um, you know, Etta James singing At Last Mm. and Beyonce singing At Last are both versions of that song that can, should, and do bring tears to most people's eyes. But they are night and day. Yep. So a Beyonce At Last works flawlessly, seamlessly, and beautifully at the Obama inauguration. You can't take that recording and put it in a film that is set in the 60s or 70s. It just, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't, it would, it would rub against the, the context. And, and everybody it's a weird would, thing for the brain to kind of yeah. wrap and, your head around. And everybody would know it. Even, you know, the untrained ear, the untrained eye, everybody knows it when, when you hear it. In that context, you would absolutely know the Beyonce version is a rub, as you say, which is a great way to describe it. It's it's what I used to. I mean, Mad Men is a great example, and, and Mad Men was authentic to. I mean, I think like down to the money that they were using was all the right size, shape, and color. They would never use a Buick from 1974 in an episode that's set in 1968. Right. The, the, the the small group of people who would recognize the different fenders would be pissed and they would go online and they'd talk about it. So music, just like props, just like makeup, just like costume, it's a department that pays attention to historical detail. And going back to recording quality and all of those little tiny factors that go into creating something much, much, much bigger it's all about the tapestry and the song is part of that and the performers are part of that i mean harry mason on hbo uh, about 15 minutes into the first episode i don't really even know if i like it that much but matthew reese and shay wiggum the two main characters are talking like guys from the 30s mm-hmm. they're they're filling those roles in terms of the way that they're speaking and moving and the way that they're dressed is obviously LA looks like it's the thirties. It all feels super authentic. And then you watch Matthew Reese on the Americans and he does it for the eighties. The he's, he's a, a performer who can do that. And so just like an actor has to be a chameleon, every other part of the film or the TV show has to be 
chameleon and music is huge music is is elemental to all of us i once asked somebody i know in la who does wardrobe and we were having a very similar discussion and we were talking about a movie that took place during world war ii and I said, oh, yeah, I remember his tweed suit in that film. I was enamored with that because that was a decade before I was born. I grew up in a little family-owned department store in a farm town. So I was probably more aware of, of clothing and fashion at a very young age than most kids would have been back then. And uh, I said something to her like I could literally smell the tweed. <laughs> and she lit up and she said that's what we're going for we want to it's one more thing we can do to put you in the room and in tweed jackets back then everybody smoked and you know things didn't go to the dry cleaner as much and they smelled musty and she said yeah you could smell the tweed that's great i'm sure i made her whole week by saying that um, no it, it, it matters it matters so much i have friends that work in all of these fields and the care that that we all take is um, is you know when anytime you someone says that they appreciate what you do just like when we validate work that musicians did 20 15 30 years ago any of it, it it really matters and it goes a long way and there's some gratitude exchanged in both directions when that happens so by the way vintage music 15 years makes the song vintage Michael that's kind of that's a, rule, that's a rule of thumb these days <laughs> It's mind blowing to me. Um, so 2005. Yeah. Is, uh, <laughs> if you recorded a song in 2005, the odds are it was probably done onto some decent hardware with some decent software. I mean, uh, MacBook Pros were out by then. I think that I had a decent PowerBook at the time that had GarageBand pre-installed. Yeah. So there's a lot of material from that era that never went anywhere beyond MySpace that should probably get a second listen. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, we were well past the Elisa's ADAT era. That is even old compared to 2005. I think ADATs were probably in the middle 90s. You're right. ADAT, I, yeah, I think that that's, that sounds about right to me. ADATs maybe the last ADATs that I hear about are usually late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, wow. Um, are there any genres, and I know much of this is dictated by genres of movies and the periods in which they take place, but are there any uh, genres of vintage music that if you had to look at you know, the last 10 years that you've been doing this that seem to be more frequently asked for than others? I would say blues, uh, blues rock. And if you kind of go around through if you go decade by decade it's probably the the best way of looking at it because there have been so many different types of projects so if it's the 70s then we're talking about like heavy bluesy rock if it's the 80s we're talking about new wave if it's the 60s it opens things up quite a bit because we could be talking about frankie valley or we could be talking about uh the beatles we could be talking about Helter Skelter, we could be talking about a very wide range stylistically. 50s, rockabilly. So there are, there's an arc to all of it, but I guess the fundamental underlying unifying thread between everything is that they're, you know, well-written songs shine regardless of the genre. And 
they tend to pop out pretty fast um, in a very broad sense. I would say that if you were to put something into the category of, um, I mean, this is even like sort of a dangerous game to play, but like singer-songwriter-ish, that seems to be... Uh, that seems to be what works in a lot of visual spaces because you're not looking for things to overpower dialogue. You're not looking for things to commandeer the scene. So if it's acoustic guitars or sort of mellow, um, dreamy, poppy type sounds, that could just fit on a radio and a restaurant, etc. in the background. I mean, that's that's kind of the, the vibe. There are universal truths that horns and dialogue always conflict so you're not going to hear a lot of ska in <laughs> tv shows or films that i can think of i mean i would love to see a, a film about like the early ska scene in washington dc but it would be a tricky one to film um so it's the to answer your question the genre would really just be thoughtful music how about that thoughtful did i did i, did I create a genre thoughtful uh, things that things that have things that reflect the the work that have gone into them that supersedes the genre in terms of what gets licensed so if it's something where you can tell that the person put their heart and soul into it that's gonna rise to the top and that can be in any genre. That can be a soul recording. That can be a funk recording. That can be hip-hop. That can be anything that you could name off the top of your head. And since every movie and every TV show has different need, nailing down a specific type of vintage music is tricky. Sticking to what was popular at the time is a good rule of thumb. Uh, have you noticed any trends as to decades that things are... Uh, it's clearly very, I can tell just by the nature of what all the companies that run listings with Taxi, I don't even have to look at like Variety or IMDb to know, oh, there must be a show that everybody's putting a bet down on uh, that's going to be a big show next fall and it's done in the 80s because like 60% of all you guys who run listings with Taxi will all be looking for 80s music. Uh, are, are there any trends that you can forecast coming up as to popular decades? Well, I'm in my mid-30s, so I think that a lot of my peers are at a point where they are getting things made in the form of whether it's films or TV shows or even podcasts, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so nostalgia for me is really mid-90s and early 2000s. And I would think that in a broad sense across the creative space the writers and producers who are out there telling their own personal stories and reaching into their bag and, and writing what they know it's it's going to be stuff from their own lives and to that end it would be stuff that's probably from the last 30 40 years um you know my favorite show of the last couple of years and i wasn't expecting to like it at all was this show snowfall about the crack epidemic and i just absolutely fell in love with it that was the first show i watched during quarantine and wow. uh 
So that show, I think, is 1983. Um, and it's 83, and then it jumps up a couple of years, maybe, over the seasons. I'm not sure. So I think that 80s and 90s are going to remain very, very interesting moving forward. I think that we're sort of in a strange place in terms of no one's really sure where we're going to be going in the next few years in terms of what audiences are going to be clamoring for. Um, so I think that sticking in terms of vintage music, it still goes back to the great music gets licensed. And, and that's what we're always going to be looking for. And that's what people who are looking for vintage music in a broad sense are always going to be looking for great stuff. And in terms of trends and storytelling, I, I, I do think that the nineties are, are kind of coming back around and, and I don't really know what made the late nineties or the early two thousands, um, special or unique in terms of, uh, in terms of mm, cultural movements and things like that, but I'm eager to be reminded of those things. I so, think that's an incredible observation on your part that it's the age category of the people who are writing, directing, and producing the films. Those are 30-year-olds now. Uh, it's not so much, you know, the 65 to 75-year-old film execs that, uh, you know, they, they recognize, even the old dudes who run the, the studios recognize the audiences are, are younger and are re reaching out to younger people who are telling their stories, at least stories that are contemporary to their generation. So that, you're absolutely right, I think. Well, that, I think, yeah, I mean, there's always an element of torch passing. I think Matthew Weiner probably grew up in the 60s. I think that um, the Sopranos guy probably grew up in the, the Sopranos days of whenever the, the prequel movie was set. I, so it does follow the, that trend. But the other thing is um, the things that people talk about and the things that catch the zeitgeist seem more and more unpredictable these days because there's just so much content out there that you never know what's gonna like be the the hit or what's gonna be the the thing that everyone winds up talking about this week or you know for this this month so that again goes back to that what's the underlying thread here and the underlying thread is let's look for stuff that people really thought about and really took a step back and said I'm going to make something special. And then they go out and they do it. And there are a lot of talented people in this world. And I'm sure there are a lot of talented people watching this right now because I know what taxi membership's like. Well, you've certainly contributed to their education, not only today, but at past road rallies. And uh, again, uh, I, I really appreciate you. I appreciate the company. I appreciate your, your generosity in sharing all this stuff. Um, I, I feel like Taxi became something that I didn't envision when I started it. When I started it in 1992, I thought it was all about get listings, get people syncs, get people record deals. It became equally as much about the education. And because if you're educated, 
you make better choices in pursuing your career. So thank you for contributing so mightily to that. Um, and I can't wait to have you back, man. You're always a great guest, uh, e even you know on a phone interview like this. Just amazing information today. So thank you. Uh, and, My pleasure, Michael. Uh, I, I, I wish we lived closer and could find the time and hang out more because uh, I enjoy your company a lot. Um, well, we'll find the time to do that from six to eight feet away soon. All right. And uh, yeah, hopefully uh, we'll be able to have a road rally. I'm getting down to the wire. I'm making the decision with, with the governor and the hotel as to whether or not we can even do one this year. But if we do, uh, I can't wait to see you there. And uh, thanks again for doing this. I will talk to you. Actually, I'm going to call you. I'm going to send you a song right after the show, something I want you to hear. Great. Um, All right. And uh, everyone watching, have a great night. Thank you very much, Mr. Mystery Music Supervisor. All right. <laughs> Bye, Michael. Bye-bye. I can't believe I went for an hour and a half and didn't mention his name once. I'm so proud of myself. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, I love having him as a guest. He's a great guy, super smart, as you can see. And uh, I will see you tomorrow for another episode of Taxi's Quarantini Happy Hour. Don't forget to give us a... Th I always do it right in front of my face. Yeah. <laughs> Don't forget to give us a thumbs up. Hit that red button and subscribe if you're not a subscriber already. Uh, and I will see you uh, Quarantini folks tomorrow for at 4 o'clock. Oh, giving you a heads up, I am likely going to take Thursday off from doing the quarantine this week. So just just letting you know now. I'm debating, and I will let you know tomorrow and Wednesday. Thanks for watching, you guys.